0: Right, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9 through chapter 12, verse 14. We are finishing the book of Ecclesiastes today, and we're going to be talking about, well, what's the bottom line? What's the bottom line in the book of Ecclesiastes, but also what's the bottom line in life? Uh, the, this book really gets to it here at the end. When it comes to most things in life, don't you want to know what's the bottom line? For instance, your job at work, and you're trying to figure out what What's determines success at what I do for a living? You, you just you want to know the bottom line. End of the day, if I don't get anything else done this week, what's the one thing I need to get done? Right, and, and you can apply that in the myriad of areas across our life. We, at the end of the day, we'll cut to the chase. What's the bottom line as we go through everything else? What's the must? What's the win? What's what are we looking for here? And in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, we're kind of getting down. To the bottom line. For the book, in terms of what he means, but also in the context of life, what's the bottom line? What's life really all about? Now we don't know for sure who wrote this book. So let me give you, uh, We could have been Solomon. Many people believe it was Solomon. It's very possible. could have been someone else who maybe even had Solomon in mind when they wrote it. Uh, but the author himself does not tell us his name. So we can't be certain on those things. But a key theme in the book, a phrase that we see throughout that we've talked about over these last several weeks is this phrase, Under the sun. He talks about seeing things under the sun. That's his way of referring to life on this earth, right? We are under the sun. And he's talking about life in a broken world. Life as we see it from humanity's perspective in this broken world. And now, one of the points of him using that phrase is he's really pointing us, by the end of the book here, and throughout the book he gives us glimpses of this, above the sun. He's showing us that when it's just left with what's under the sun in this broken world living your day-to-day life, if that's all there is, wow, things can get really frustrating for us. Another word that we see throughout this book is the Hebrew word havel. Now, depending on your translation, it's translated differently, but in our translation that I've been using, uh, the ESV, it usually translates it vanity or vanities. Other ways that it can be translated, um, uh, or you see "meaningless" in the NIV. And here's the, the reason it's translated so many different ways is because it has so many different meanings. It, there's not really just one translation for it. In fact, it's one of the harder Hebrew words for us in the English language to nail down because it can have so many meanings. It, in its most literal form, just means a vapor. Right? But it, figuratively, it can have lots of meanings because of that. So, at times, when we come to it in the text, it may mean uh, meaningless or fleeting like a vapor or frustrating or inscrutable. There's all the... Like, I can't understand it. Like, And so it's got all these different shades and I believe part of the key to understanding Ecclesiastes is understanding that at different points in the book it can mean different things. And a phrase he uses with it a lot that we tagged our series with is chasing the wind that life sometimes feels like you're just chasing the wind. And so you can imagine how frustrating that would be, how fleeting the wind is, and how pointless and meaningless that could feel. It kind of captures a lot of those words in that phrase. And so, as we wind down, the focus is, he gets to this after unveiling to us, life under the sun is full of havel. It's full of, at times, things feel meaningless or there's absurd things and things that are inscrutable to us and we can't understand. And this life is a vapor that is quick passing away. So in the midst of all that, how do we live? And we've seen different glimpses of that, but he really boils it down with his final advice starting around verse 9 here of chapter 11 and through the final words of this book. And so as we walk through this morning, I'm going to give you just a few ideas here of what the bottom line really is as we walk through this together. So what we're going to do, instead of just reading this whole passage at once, we're going to kind of read it chunk by chunk and walk through it. So first let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Look with me. He says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So the first thing we need to understand here, the first part of the bottom line is that we need to steward our hearts and lives well. Today. All of our points are going to end with today. There's an urgency in the text this morning. He, remember, he says, or rejoice excuse me, rejoice, so oh young men in your youth. In your youth, right? There's an urgency there. It's, it's now while you're young. Walk in the ways of your heart the side of your eyes. Know that God's going to bring you into judgment. But he said, I want you to begin this quest for joy today and throughout the book he has not shied away from wanting us to live lives that we enjoy he wants us to enjoy life he wants us to pursue joy in life but now he's even given us more context but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment so the idea here is that it's a pursuit of joy but in the context of God's design He's not advocating some kind of wanton hedonism. It's not just go out and live in whatever kind of uh, immorality that your heart might find. That's kind of the warning of the text. That's why I'm telling you the point here in these first two verses is to steward our heart and our life well because our quest for joy is going to be what we pursue joy in. Where we find joy is going to be determined where our heart leads us. He says walk in the way of your heart, but know that God's going to bring you into judgment. So you better be careful where your heart Leads you, so it's enjoying life in the context of God's design. There's an accountability in these verses, for if you enjoy, choose to enjoy the good gift of life or not, and how you choose to enjoy it. You think about that. We think about, okay, oh, but God's going to judge you, and I don't think His idea is that God's standing over you with like a you know a paddle. No, it, it, it's it's the idea is not just simply, hey, be careful what you enjoy, but there's also an, there, there's that, but there's also this accountability for He's told you to pursue and enjoy the good gift of life. You're not just accountable for what you enjoy and how you enjoy and all that. You're also accountable whether you choose joy or not and choose to enjoy the good gift of life God's given you. So we have to steward our heart because our heart's going to determine where we find our joy and we're accountable for that, to God. And so if my joy is found in the things of the world, right, as opposed to ultimately being found in God, if I treat life, Like a game instead of a gift from God and all these sort of things, right? And I go over here into this extremity of worldliness or over here in this extremity of legalism. Either way, I'm steering aside from just simply enjoying life in the context of God's design and what God's Word tells me to walk in. You know, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Some translations say guard your heart. The idea is that from your heart, all these other things, the wellspring of life is the heart. All these other things in life are affected by the heart. Did you know your heart affects your marriage? Did you know your heart affects the way you treat people at work? The way you treat people at church? The way you treat your neighbor? It affects your attitude? Your heart affects all these things. It's like the wellspring of life and everything else in your life is affected by the heart. And So he says, walk in the ways of your heart. Know you're going to be held accountable. For walking the ways of your heart. And over Proverbs it says, keep your heart, guard your heart, protect your heart, because it's going to affect everything else about your life. So we have to steward our heart, steward our lives well, because we are going to be held to an account, but also it affects everything else. And he says you need to start this when you are it's in your youth. He says enjoy your youth, because you're not going to be young forever. Now here's the thing. We read passages like this, and we think, because there's a lot here in the next passage too, about... Youthfulness. And we look at these passages and we think, well, he's talking to young men and young women, right? And many in the room would say, well, maybe he's not talking to me. And let me get in, But let, let me think about this for a second. To some degree, youth is in the eye of the beholder. None of us are getting younger. And some of us, though we feel older, to others in the room, you still have a lot of youth left. So, for instance, the college students, they look over at a middle school student and they go, now that's what he means when he says youth. Right, And I look out at the college students and I'm 36 and I look out at the college students and I go, that's what he means when he says you. And then some of the folks who are maybe old enough to be my mom or dad go, no, you're what he's talking about when he says you. And then there's another group in the room that looks at that group that's in their 50s or 60s and they said, no, you're also what he's talking about when he says you. Right? I, you know, you're just a pup. What are you talking about? Right? And so it's, in the, it's a little bit in the context of the eye of the, of, the, of the beholder. It's on a scale. Youthfulness does not disappear overnight. And nor does old age set in overnight. Old age, we're going to see, comes upon us in a process and youthfulness slowly disappears in a process. And so we're all somewhere on the scale. And some of us are more youthful than others, but it's important that we understand it that way. Or we'll miss applying the urgency of the text that youthfulness is quickly fleeting. And some of us are further on that scale than others. But at the end of the day, the point is there's an urgency in this part to steward our heart and our life well. I think about it kind of like baking a cake. Right? So you got a cake and you're going to make a cake and I'm not a cake baker. My wife bakes cakes. I don't I don't bake cake. I can operate the grill or the cast iron skillet beyond that. I don't operate much in that round. But my wife, was. if you're baking a cake and you've got your bowl and you're putting all your ingredients in, this is what I know, is you're mixing the ingredients, you've got your eggs and you've got your flour and you've got your vanilla and all the stuff you might need in that cake. And then you go and you take the after you've mixed that cake and you've mixed those ingredients together, that batter together, and you pour it in the pan and you put it in the oven, all right? And you put it in the oven and it's been in there like 10 seconds. And you go, oh, I forgot to add. And you name it. And you pull it out real quick, right? And maybe, depending on the top cake and all that, you can add that and remix it all and report it in there. But if you have that thought like ten minutes in, too bad, right? The cake's baking, and in a sense, we have to understand life this way. As we live our life, we, starting in our youth, we are adding ingredients, right, and we're mixing them up. And you're adding them and you're adding them and you're adding different things this year and you're adding different things that year and you're making decisions and these are all like the ingredients for your life and whether you're, what kind of life you're going to have. But the interesting thing about life is a little different than baking a cake because while you're adding the ingredients, you don't have to wait to put it in the oven. It is baking. And the further you get in life, the harder it is to change the ingredients. It just is. So for instance, if you've got a job you hate at 25, good news pretty easy to switch gears compared to 55. Can the 55-year-old switch gears? Absolutely. Is it more difficult than it is for the 25-year-old? Sure it is. I could tell you, hey, with God all things are possible, and they are, but I would be foolish to tell you it's not going to be way more difficult. Right? Way more difficult. Is it impossible for someone who's had a miserable marriage for 50 years to have a really good last five years or whatever? Sure, by God's grace, it is absolutely impossible for your marriage to be radically changed late in life, even if it's been miserable for decades. But you know what? It's way better to add that ingredient before the marriage began. Or at the onslaught of the marriage. The point is, certain things in life, the longer we wait, the more the cake is baked. And by God's grace, life change is always possible. But there are consequences in this life. And there are things that get baked into the fabric of our lives. And that's why he's saying, listen, today, in your youthfulness, that's on this sliding scale, today, seize today. Begin to steward your life and your heart well today, not later. In verse 10 he says, remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity." There are issues in your life that, if you don't deal with them today, they're going to be more painful to deal with tomorrow. He tells this young man, he says, "Remove this vexation, remove this pain from your body." It's it's an urgency. Youth and the dawn of life, he says, are vanity. There it means fleeting. Your youthfulness is flying away from you. It's fleeing right before your eyes. So deal with your issues. He's saying, deal with all the junk in your life today. That's what he's saying. He's saying you got baggage. You say, hey, I don't have that. You've got baggage. Then You've got junk in your life. You've got issues in your life. You've got stuff that affects the way you think and affects how you treat people and affects the way you view things. Deal with that vexation today. The word vexation means anxiety. It can also mean anger, grief, irritation, or sorrow. One commentator, Ian Proven, thinks it's better translated frustration. The things that frustrate you. Another commentator, Dwayne Garrett, says the idea is that you should not let the human condition rob you of the joy of life. He's explained the human condition throughout Ecclesiastes, the frustrating nature of living in a fallen world and being a fallen people. He says don't let that rob you of the joy of life. Derek Kidner, I love his observation, he observes that this is the, bitter, quote, bitterness provoked by a hard and disappointing world. What are all these guys saying? Life is hard, don't let it mess you up. That's what, that's what the writer says. You, can, you can't control it. You can't understand everything about life. Bad things are going to happen to you. And if you go looking for meaning and purpose, as he said in early in Ecclesiastes, and things where meaning and purpose is not really found, you're going to be miserable. If you let the hard parts of life crush you, you're going to be miserable. The world is a broken place and we are broken people. So do not let the broken world and the anxiety and frustration that comes with your brokenness in this broken world weigh you down to the point of misery. In other words, don't grow bitter in the hardness of life. Don't grow hard-hearted or pessimistic because you'll let life eat you alive. He also says put away pain from your body. That word pain can also mean evil. The idea is that they are that there are both inner issues, heart issues and outer issues, moral and life issues that you have to be on guard against and that you have to deal with. Sometimes heart issues become physical issues. They become outer issues. The point is, steward your heart and life in such a way that you can enjoy the life God has given you to enjoy and not be dragged down into misery with all the baggage that we collect living in a fallen world. You know, there are people right now, that are miserable at the age of 60 because of something in the hardness of life that happened to them at 20 or 30 or 40 or 15 and it's still affecting them at 60. Life can and does do that to people. And if you don't forgive that person that sinned against you, you'll grow more bitter. If you don't deal with that baggage from high school, it's not going to get better in your senior adult years. Time doesn't heal every wound. Some things you have to deal with. Time will heal some wounds. But you got to deal with your heart. That's what He's... The vexation of your heart. The issues of your heart. His concern mainly in these first few verses is your heart and my heart this morning. So what issue maybe do you need to deal with this morning? That's one of the bottom lines He's driving it in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is dealing with our heart. Marriage issues. Parenting issues. Friendship issues. Trust issues with God. Disappointments we've dealt with in life. We've got to deal with them today. Because God wants you to enjoy your youth and your life. And that is on a sliding scale. And that begins with good stewardship of your heart and life today. Now, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. Look with me. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. He's saying, walk with God now. That's our second observation. Walk with God now. Today. Right? Steward your heart and life well now. Today. Walk with God now. Today. There's urgency. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. It means more than give God a passing thought. It means life is meant to be lived in the context of how God has designed life to be lived. It means don't put off walking with God for another day in time. Walk with God now. Especially in your youth. In Psalm 50... The wicked are referred to as those who, quote, forget God. That's how they're referred to. You see that a few times in the Psalms, actually. Talk about forgetting God, forgetting God. The wicked are those who forget God. They forgot God, you'll see that phrase. In other words, they knew something of him, but they lived like it wasn't true. Rather than submit to and obey God, they chose to ignore God. Ignore his principles, ignore his promises, ignore his commands. And To remember Him means to live with Him at the very center of your life, to live mindfully of God, in obedience to God, trusting God in the reality that there is a God that created you, that knows you, that wants you to know Him and wants you to walk with Him. But many people put off getting right with God only to never get right with God. And then life ends suddenly, the heart grows hard, whatever, and they never get right with God. So that's why He puts the urgency in there. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. He says that evil days are coming that you'll take no pleasure in. And He's beginning to talk about aging. Now look at verses 2-5 through with me. He says, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are dark and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Now some believe this is kind of an apocalyptic look at the world comparing aging to that, but I think actually he's more than likely describing a house or a home in this neighborhood as it begins to age. And he's comparing the aging process to that. In verse 3, he says, the keepers of the house tremble. Many believe that's the hands and the legs as we age and things can tremble. The strong men are bent, he says. That may refer to the legs or the shoulders, many believe. The the grinders... this passage would be women who are grinding grain, but here he would be, that would be an analogy for teeth. It says, when the grinders are few, those that look through the windows would be the eyes losing vision. Those that look through the windows are dimmed. Verse 4, the doors on the street are shut. That may be the ears clo- in the loss of hearing. Some believe it may actually be the doors of opportunity as you age and there's less opportunity in certain areas of life. The sound of the grinding being low would refer to losing your hearing. And the rising up, the daughters of song brought low, losing of hearing. But then the rising up at the sound of the bird, not being able to sleep well. It's like I can't hear good, but anything wakes me up, right? And he's dealing with, he's talking about this frustration, right, of this. And he says in verse 5, being afraid of what is high and tears being in the way as the body grows more feeble and more physically weak. when someone used to run and skip and jump and now they may crossing the street may be a major challenge. He's just painting a very realistic picture of somebody very progressed in the aging process. He says the almond tree blossoms probably referring to the hair turning white. The grasshopper drags itself along may refer to the weakness of old age. Really hard to say what that one means. Desire fails and all this is happening, he says, because man is going to his eternal home. He's speaking here of just death and the finality of it. A graphic description of aging and then death. Verse 6. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Water, that has been said, is a symbol of life. And most of these, in these few verses, are water receptacles. And they're breaking. And so the point is, life ending, Right? Some think the silver cord is the spine, the golden bowl of the head. And, all. and some of these things are just hard to say. But the point is, it's a picture of aging and it's a picture of death. And all of this, his point is, is, that we're all in this process. We're all aging and we're all headed for this date with death that he has reminded us of, as we know, spending 12 weeks in Ecclesiastes, over and over again. And he's saying in the midst of all that, you need to remember your Creator now in your youth. Live for God. Get right with God. Make sure your life is centered on God today. Sometimes the silver cord snaps before you age greatly. Sometimes the golden bowl gets busted before you ever get far along in the aging process. We know this. This it happens all around us every day. So it's putting an urgency to us on dealing with God. You know, some of the most important life-shaping decisions you make are made before you ever get older. It's really, When you think about it, it's, it's one of those weird things about life. You've got so much more wisdom as you age, but some of the decisions that you make even at 17 or 18 or 25, are going to affect you many times when you're 75. And you think, man, if I could make that decision at 75, I'd make a much more wiser decision. But you don't get to do that. Your character is being shaped right now. Habits are being formed right now. Beliefs are being ingrained right now. They start very young. You'll typically choose your career path somewhere in your 20s or sooner. That will affect you for the rest of your life. It's a life-shaping decision. You will choose your spouse typically in your younger days. And that decision is life-changing. Your children are being shaped. If you've got young children, you are shaping them today. And it's harder to help shape who they are and who they become when they're 22 than it is when they're 2. You say, that can't be possible. Right? Terrible 2's, or you kidding me? Oh, it gets, it only gets, your influence only gets weaker. And here's the point. What sense does it make to delay walking with God? The most life-altering decisions for you and your family are being made now. You say, I don't even have a family yet. Yeah, and you're making decisions right now that are going to affect them. Some of you are making decisions right now that could affect your children. I don't have children. Absolutely. But we create habits and we create a culture and we create a style of life that will continue to affect us. So he says, you need to remember God now. He says... The idea here, when he refers to God as creator, you have to remember throughout Ecclesiastes, he's pointed us back to the fall at times. And so he's referring to our creator here, he's referring to the fact that there is one who has designed us and given life to us and who has a purpose for life. Listen, if you have a creator, that means you have a purpose and life has a purpose. Just by by choosing to say creator and not remember God, he's pointing us to that. Life is designed. You are designed in a certain way. There is a purpose behind everything. I want you to imagine, go back, I don't know, I wonder who, we don't know who did this, I don't guess. And so, but I wish we could go back and and I would like to meet the person that invented the wheel. Right? That changed everything. That's the invention we always go back to. It was like the first one that really just changed life for everybody. Right? So you go back to whoever this guy was, gal was, whatever, centuries ago that invented the wheel. And can you imagine they're like out there outside their little hut or whatever and they're like making, you know, they're carving something out of wood and they're trying to get it round and all this kind of stuff. And people are walking by and they're thinking, what in the world is that? That's a really big plate. You know, he must eat a lot. You know, I mean, you know, they're like, what, what? And maybe they haven't been to I don't know. I think that the plate probably came early, especially if Baptists were around then, but, and, and they, and they weren't, uh, but so you've got this, And he's carving it, and they're like, and they're asking all these questions, and they're wondering. And one guy thinks they they get down the street, and they're hanging out in the neighborhood. And one guy says, "Well, I think it's a this, and I think it's a that. I think it's kind of Noah building the ark." And they're all like, "What's that, right?" But there's one person that absolutely knows what he's making, and he has something in mind as he's making it. I doubt it was discovered just on accident. I mean, maybe it was. We don't know. But whoever's carving those wheels over there, he absolutely knows, and he's picturing whatever, making his farming life easier, whatever, being able to roll things and not carry things, right? maybe a very motivated lazy man, I don't know, right? And so, but he, but he, he is very driven. He, he knows what he's doing. Everybody else, they're trying to kind of guess, and then they finally see it in operation. The light bulb goes off, but. It was a creation. It was something that was being made. And so it had a purpose. And one person absolutely knew what the purpose was, even if nobody else did. And in the same sense, I'm telling you, that because there is a Creator that has designed you and wired you and created actually the idea of life at all, that very person, God, He absolutely knows everything about the way life's supposed to work and what the point and purpose of life is and how foolish and how ignorant do we look, sit around and discussing in all these things without going to the Creator and sinking our life up with His will and His purposes when He's the one that created life in the first place? There's a purpose. There's a point. So remember your Creator in your youth. Now look with me at verses 9 and 10. He says, "...besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge." weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now he's kind of winding down the book, kind of giving his little epilogue here, and he's and he's talking about his purpose of writing, right? His purpose of writing. In Ecclesiastes' is wisdom literature, the preacher, as he calls himself, he says he's wise, he's got wisdom, and he taught knowledge. And he says he took great care. He meant to study and to weigh out what to write and what not to write and how to arrange the Proverbs. He didn't do this willy-nilly. He didn't just sit down one day and just kind of, you know, here's, you know, write a masterpiece without hardly thinking about it. He said, man, I really spent a lot of time on this. Thinking through this, praying through this, seeking to write down the right things. But most importantly, he says, the words I'm writing are words of truth. And then in verse 11, he says, the words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. And so this idea of walking with God, not only does it have an idea of remembering your Creator, it also has an idea of trusting and following the one shepherd. And that's who he's pointing us to here. He says the words of the wise ultimately come, they're ultimately given by one person. And it's the one shepherd. In other words, all true wisdom, all true wisdom comes from God. Right, And so God has given us His Word where we know the truest and purest wisdom is found. And obviously Ecclesiastes, these words of the wise that He's given us, is in the Scriptures now because it is is designed by God to be in the Scriptures. It's it's, um, inspired by God to be in the Scriptures. And He says God is the one shepherd who 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 is wanting to lead people and trying to lead people in wisdom. The wisdom ultimately, true wisdom, comes from Him. And so, yeah, we walk with God by remembering He's the one that designed life, and we need to be we need to obey Him, but we also need to understand He's not just a creator, He's a shepherd. See, He's given us multiple references for God in this passage. He's creator, and now we see He is shepherd. He He, he designed you, but He also wants to lead you. He made you, but He also wants to care for you, like a shepherd would have. But notice how He refers to the words of the wise. He says the words of the wise are like goads and nails. You know what a goad is? It's this long pointy stick with like nails on the end. And they would use it to poke cattle or poke an ox to get it to go the direction. If it wasn't going the right direction, if it wasn't responding right, you just poke it with that thing, right? And he says the words of the wise, which in this context he says, which comes from God, right? So especially God's Word. Sometimes it's like getting poked with a pointy stick. Right? You ever wanted to do that? I uh, just think, you know, this person—they're just doing some stupid stuff. I wish I had—I wish I could just poke them, right? You know, or whack them, you know. And he's saying, you know, there's some wisdom in that. Spiritually speaking, God does that sometimes with His word and with the words of the wise. Sometimes we just kind of get jabbed because we need to be jabbed. In other words, sometimes the words of the wise, sometimes the word of God, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it lays you bare. Sometimes it stings, and we need that because sometimes we're stubborn and we go in one direction or the other and we don't respond to a gentle hey over here. And so we need a jab. And he's saying the words of the wise are like this. It's also like nails though. They're like nails. In other words, they're firmly placed. It's a picture of security. It's something you can trust. Something, just like you can hang that picture on the wall with that nail in that study saying in the same way you can, you can count on the, there, there, there's an assurance, there is a security there in the words of the wise, in, the, in God's word especially, that you can lean on, you can trust it. Yeah, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it prods you. Sometimes it exposes things. Sometimes it, sometimes it makes you very uncomfortable, but you can trust it. And listen, God's way more concerned with your holiness and your spiritual growth than He is your comfort level. Jesus didn't die to make you comfortable. He died to make you holy. He died to make you His. He died to make you like Himself. In verse 12, He says, My son, beware of anything beyond these these words of wisdom. Of making many books, He says, there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. In other words, avoid the ditch of missing out on wisdom altogether by ignoring wise words, but especially God's word. But also avoid turning the study of books and the search for knowledge into more than it is. He warns us throughout that in, in throughout Ecclesiastes. Don't make wisdom what wisdom's not supposed to be. Don't make the search for knowledge what it's not supposed to be. That's not where the meaning and purpose of life is found. That's found only in God. Don't make things out to be more than they are. Is your life in alignment? with God and His will today? Are you walking with God? Remembering your Creator? Following the one Shepherd? Is He at the center of your life? So we need to steward our heart and our life well today. We need to walk with God today. And we need to prepare for judgment today. Look at verse 13 and 14. The last two verses of the book. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. Let me summarize for you. The end of all. The end of the matter. I'm, I'm down at the end of the book. Here's what I'm getting at. All has been heard. You've heard everything I've got to say. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Spooky, huh? Did you like that verse? Wow. He says, you want to know the bottom line? The bottom line is, yeah, steward your heart. Yeah, walk with God. Yeah, because guess what? You will be judged. Fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the duty of man. This is the end of the matter. When he says this is the whole duty of man, it literally reads, as one commentator says, this is the whole of humanity. The word duty is not in there. We're kind of adding that. He said, in a sense he's saying, this is what it means to be human. This is the bottom line. This is all all of humanity. This is what it means. Fear God. Obey His commandments. What's his point? He's reminding us throughout. He's reminded us of creation and of the fall and how absurd things can be and how difficult things can be. And he gets to the end of the book and he says this. You need God. You were made to need God. And you were made to live in reverential fear and obedience before Him. And life is absurd and makes no sense and feels meaningless. Apart from that, you were not created to live independent from God. You were created to live dependently on God. In a world filled with Havell, meaningless and fleeting nature of life and absurdity and frustration and inscrutable things in this world, man, we need God. And that's his point. His point is not you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps because if you do good enough and you're a good boy, you'll please God. That's not really his point. Because we know throughout Ecclesiastes, he's shown us that we're crooked. And there is not a righteous man who does not sin. And he, So what's he showing us here when he says the bottom line is fear God and obey His commandments? Is guess what? You haven't done a good job of that. I haven't done a good job of that. We don't live in constant reverential fear of respect and obedience to God. It shows us just how far we've fallen short. He's, showing, he's simple, saying very simply, you need God. And you better get God because you're going to be judged by God. God the Creator is not a trinket to add to our life. He's the very point of living. He's not something to add to the list. I've got to prioritize God and family and friends. God wants to write the list. He don't want to be on your list. He don't want to be a priority. He wants to be your life. And everything else to flow from that. God the Creator made us to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him. And we're not being who we're created to be if we're living apart from Him. Life doesn't work well disconnected from God. You say, well, I'm disconnected from God and I'm, I've got money and I've got a family and I like my life pretty well. And... Great, but guess what? You are going to stand before God. If there is a Creator and there is a God and there is, you're going to stand before Him and you're going to be judged. And all those things aren't going to matter. For someone who didn't fear God or keep His commandments, which is all of us. And herein lies the problem. Apart from the grace of God, we do not fear God. We do not desire or properly obey God. Rather than being in awe of God, we're afraid of God. Many times. And his point is not to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. His point is to show you your desperate situation. He says, God will bring all your deeds into judgment. That's the phrase he uses. Every single one of them he says. And then he says, Even the secret things, whether good or evil. That's a scary verse. That thing that nobody knows about to me? That was years ago. Yep. There's no sin. There's no thought. There's no hidden activity. That, no motive that God does not see and that will escape His eyes and His judgment. Hell is going to be full of people who thought their sins were well hidden. And at the judgment, I'm telling you, they will be loudly broadcast. you ever been busted? Maybe as a kid? You're doing something you weren't supposed to do and you got caught, right? Maybe as a teenager, curfew was 11 o'clock and you rolled in at 12 and you thought your parents were fast asleep and you slip in and then... But they're on the couch. Busted, right? Maybe it says a small child and you're not supposed to have that right now but you're in the fridge and you're getting it. or what? And busted, right? It's just that feeling like, oh, right? Or when you're younger and... Maybe sometimes you acted one way at school, another way around your parents, but then sometimes the teacher and the parents, and they all, maybe this is a smile off, I don't know, and they get to talking and they, busted, right? Oh, your kid's not always that good. They're not exactly who you think they are. Busted, oh, it's that feeling like, oh, of shame and of like exposed. And he says, listen, that's what judgment day is going to be like. All those things that we think are safely tucked away that nobody knows about. He says, no, you're going to be judged for those things. Your secret sins. You will not hide it from God. He will expose you for who you really are. You say, man, these are hard words. This does not sound like a great big pick-me-up. We just go where the Word takes us. And we need this Word as much as we need to know how to manage our finances and how to have a great marriage and how to raise our kids and how to do well at work and all the how-tos, 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 how-tos won't amount to squat if you stand before God naked on Judgment Day and are lost. He's saying your sins will be known by God. You say, well, what does the rest of the Bible say about that? Let's go to the New Testament. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Romans 2.16, the Apostle Paul, love the Apostle Paul, love the book of Romans. He says, on that day, judgment day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The Bible actually goes out of the way in the Old and the New Testament to point out that the secret things will be judged. Why does it do that? Does this make us uncomfortable in church? No, it does that because we need to know that. That's the gravity. It wants us to know that we can't escape God's judgment. That we can't escape God. It wants us to know how... It's not to point out how sinful you are. We're all sinful. It's to point out how big and awesome God is. That nothing escapes His eyes. Jesus confirmed this. Jesus? Meek and mild? Jesus said in Luke twelve two and 3, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, throughout this passage, He's revealed to God to us in three ways. God is Creator, and we should live life in sync with His design if we want to find true joy. God is the Shepherd, and only He can lead us to true wisdom and satisfaction. And here He's saying God is the Judge whom we will give an account to, and nothing will escape His notice. Are you ready to meet the Judge? Because life is fleeting, youth is fleeting, death is coming. And all three of the pictures of God in this text point us to what our only hope really is. Because, like I said, I haven't feared God like I should. I haven't kept all of God's commandments. Are you kidding me? I can't even name them all, much less keep them all. But all three of these are pointing us to what our only hope is, and that is Jesus, right? That's why we meet. That's the good news this morning. Listen, is that Jesus is the agent of creation. He's the Creator. Listen, John 1, 1-3, In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. And the Word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. Through Jesus. And without Him was not anything that was made that was made. Remember, your Creator, your Creator is Jesus. And He came to us taking on flesh. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Creator has stepped into our shoes and has walked among us. Right? So our only hope from being disconnected from a Creator that has designed and created life is to be reconnected to that Creator. So you know what the Creator did? He came to us. And He put on human flesh and walked in our shoes. Jesus is the Good Shepherd and the leader of God's people. In John 10.12, Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. And as the Good Shepherd, He actually laid down His life for the sheep. John 10.12 says, I'm the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep, Jesus said. In other words, I'm not just a shepherd. I'm the sacrificial lamb. I'm not just a Good Shepherd. I, I literally lay down my life for you. The only way to be reconnected to the one shepherd through whom all wisdom and all true and good leadership comes from is through the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for us. And Jesus is the righteous judge whom the Father has given all judgment to. John 5, 22 Jesus says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. It's Jesus that we will stand before, and all of our secret sins will be judged. But John three sixteen verse... 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So not only is Jesus the judge, He's the Savior, right? And so when, when you repent of your sin, when you admit your sin to God and you, in your heart you turn from your sin and you turn to God in faith, looking to Christ who is the agent of creation by whom and through whom all things were made who is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep who is the true and righteous judge who came to satisfy the very wrath of God and you look to Jesus and you say you know what, I know I'm a sinner and I know I haven't kept all those commandments and I know I haven't done that but I believe that Jesus died in my place I believe He is the Lamb that was slain on my behalf I believe all my sins were placed on Christ at the cross and that judgment happened that day that on the cross is Jesus hung there, the judgment of God came down on Jesus. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. So listen to this. Every secret sin, the ones you've done that nobody knows about but you and God, were placed on Jesus at the cross. And if you're found in Christ at the judgment day, you don't have to worry about your secret sins being exposed, because they're hidden in Christ. Gone. Washed away. you say saying, nobody's ever going to know about that? I'm saying, nobody's ever going to know about that. Nobody ever going to know about that doesn't need to know about that. That thought, that motive, that action, that this, that, that, yeah, in Christ, it's hidden, it's taken away for the believer. For the believer. For the unbeliever. Listen, your sins will either be judged in Jesus or I promise you, they'll be judged in you. Even we trust unrelentingly by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us and take away our sins. Or we stand in front of God on our own and we give account for all of them. And to be honest, that's a really good deal. That's a great deal. It's not even really a deal. It's just a promise. God just says, you got to trust Him. you got to trust my Son. So, Christian, are you today stewarding your life and your heart towards enjoying life in Christ? Are you walking with your Creator, your Shepherd? Are you ready to face Jesus at the judgment seat? You know, you're not going to go... If you're a Christian today, if you genuinely believed in Christ, you're not going to give an account for your sins. I don't believe. At the judgment seat, they've been judged in Jesus. But you will give an account for your life. The Bible says we'll all stand before Him and give an account. Are you ready to do that? Are we stewarding our life well? Unbeliever. Non-Christian, I don't know who I am. I don't know where I don't know where I stand with God. I'm I'm just kind of out there and I'm trying. I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know if I'd call myself a believer. I, I believe, but I don't know that I've really been. I don't know that I'm right with God. You will not know peace in a seemingly chaotic wor- world apart from God. The Creator, the Shepherd, the Judge in Christ has become a man who is the sacrificial lamb, who is your Savior. And so your first step in pursuing the Creator's design for your life is simple trust in Jesus by faith.